You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. If you will, take your Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 2 today. John chapter 2 this morning, and uh, that's a good song, and to look forward to walking with the King, and uh, just a glorious song, great truth today, thinking on that. John chapter 2 today, good to see you this morning, I was out of town last week, heard you guys still had church and the best crowd ever, pastor wasn't here, revival broke out, folks saved, and, and I just need to get out of the way, I guess, so... I'll uh, give you a break again soon, maybe. But anyway, I was glad to hear how God blessed while we were gone. And I am, uh, I don't know how else to put this. If you have jet lag, if you've had it, um, you're just like a half step slow. And uh, that's me today. Um, and, uh, and so maybe that'll, that'll let our sermon go a little longer or shorter. We'll see how that goes today. But it's a joy to be back with you. Appreciate your prayers uh, for us while we were traveling. I cannot tell you what an absolute miracle it is that I got to Israel and back. And uh, all kinds of COVID testing and all kinds of restrictions and hoops we had to jump through. Uh, I still don't have my laptop. It got confiscated by the Israelis on the way back. So I'm kind of operating. I'm I'm a half step slow and my brain's missing as well uh, with my laptop. So just, uh, but God's good. And I I would do it again in a heartbeat. And I hope someday soon you can maybe take that same trip. But uh, grateful to be here today. John chapter 2, before we look at our text today, uh, Pastor Dave uh, preached the last half of John 1 last week. Um, Just a word of introduction about an event we have coming up in just a few weeks on February the 12th and the 13th called Wellness Weekend. You've probably seen it on the sign uh, when you've driven in the last couple of weeks. We'll be hosting on that Saturday evening at 5.30 an opening session We'll worship together and a study together. Our theme this year, we've been doing this now for a few years, either we've called it uh, a, a mental or emotional health Sunday or weekend. This year we're repackaging that as a wellness weekend. But our theme this year is on stress and dealing with both crisis level stress, but also incremental stress through the lens of scripture. So we'll be talking about that on Friday evening. We'll have a special service at 530, uh, and then we're having a fellowship together. We'll give you more details. I'm bringing some food for that that evening. I I think our kids' choir is singing during that evening service as well. And then we will have uh, two sessions on Sunday, a 9 a.m. session in lieu of our uh, small groups that meet. Uh, There'll be a men's session and a ladies' session, and Heidi will be teaching one of those. I'll be teaching the other. And then we will end with our 1030 service Uh, that morning. But the thing of note I want to mention to you as it relates to that is about 1230 this afternoon, you're going to be getting a text from the church. If you're on our main texting list, if you want the link, we can send it to you. There's a link in that text that has about a five-question survey that helps us uh, just where you're at, especially as it relates to your emotional, mental health Uh, We believe in, obviously, there are things that clinically need to be addressed in a crisis kind of moment, but there's a lot of preventative things that we as a church can do. So you'll be getting that at 1230 today after church is done. So we at least have to be done by 1230. Um, And uh, in that will be a few questions. If you can just fill that out, that just comes to me. 
It's not something I'll quote you on or reference you directly, but it just helps us to know where you're at and maybe ways that we can minister to you, and it gives us a vibe uh, of our community as a whole. So I hope you'll help us with that uh, in the new year as we head into that special uh, Sunday together. All right, John chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage, right? So we have kind of now a shift in the narrative in John. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there was set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins. We'll define that measurement in a moment, a piece. Verse 7, Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in the Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So today we want to look at, as we've been looking at these last couple of weeks, what's the snapshot of Jesus that helps us draw closer to him, more intimately connected to him, as described in John 2. And so today we want to look at this, Jesus as the fullness, the filler, the fullness of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Uh, Lord, thank you that uh, we're here today. Thank you for all that's transpired this past week that has led us to this good hour and the pros, the cons, the ups, the downs that position us now, Lord, to be able to receive from you what you have for us in your word directly as it relates to our Savior and our Lord Jesus. I pray, Father, today that you would convince us that Jesus is enough. That, Lord, he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is everything that we could ever need or want. He fills not just the past and the present, but fills our future. And I pray, Father, that we would um, lean more consistently into him and toward him and derive from him things that satisfy like nothing else. Bless this study. Be honored in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Today, we want to look at this aspect of our study, this idea that Jesus is the fullness of uh, God. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And I just want to say this as we begin today. One of the issues in our relationship with Jesus is that we don't really believe he's enough. It's Jesus plus something. It's Jesus times something. We need something in addition to uh, just Jesus. Um, one of the experiences I had, and I'll, I'll try to share out of the overflow uh, over the next weeks and months of, of our trip, but when we were going over, so I flew to JFK and then from JFK to Tel Aviv, the flight from JFK, I don't know if you know this or not, but New York City has the second largest Jewish population in the world. So I was on a flight between number two in the world with number one in the world. And so to say there were a few Orthodox Jews on my flight was the understatement. I felt like I was the oddball uh, on the flight. Um, and one of the beliefs of Orthodox Jews, which one of the things I learned, I guess I was aware of this, an Orthodox Jew today typically is directly from the tribe of Judah and a few from the tribe of, of Benjamin. 
but they are the survivors of the Pharisee sect. So you had the Sadducees and other sects that existed. All of those were dispelled or uh, kind of marginalized as history progressed, but they are the remnants of the Pharisees. And so one of their beliefs in this day is three times a day they pray toward Jerusalem. And so I'm on a flight for 14 hours with folks that they have to get those prayers in. And I happened to, because of the way the flight worked out, there were some open seats. I, I kind of, right when we took off, I snuck up to a, with one with a little more leg room. The problem was that was also prayer central <laughs> twice on my flight. And I, at the moment, I knew I had to get a, a negative COVID test when I got there. So I'm, you know, trying to avoid, and then I just got swarmed and they're bobbing and praying and, you know, they're their, their, their tassels and their hair and the whole deal right around me, just all around me, you know, and uh, I'm in the midst of that. And it's interesting to me, not just in Judaism, but often it creeps even into Christianity, we need God plus something. We have to do something, and, and the sincerity obviously was obvious, not just in the elderly men, but the young boys as they were there in that plane, but there, there's, there's, there's something lacking in religion, and often we view that even as a believer. The context of our, our study today in John chapter 2 is John trying to illustrate in two ways, both with the filling of the vessels and then the cleansing of the temple, that Judaism was empty. Judaism did not give the full depth of all that God offers to we as his people. And so whether it's filling the water jars that are now empty or emptying the temple of its uh, empty religiosity, uh, we see fullness through the person of Jesus Christ. So the question today is this, in a world uh, and even in religion of so many empty promises and shallow people, how do we more fully appreciate what is fully given to us by God in Jesus alone? Let's talk about two characteristics of God's fullness that are only found in Jesus Christ. The first one is this. Number one, uh, Jesus is the embodiment of the satisfying fullness that God offers to us. He satisfies like no one else. And the incident before us is what? The beginning of John chapter 2. What's the social event? It's a, a wedding, right? Um, and like most weddings, not everything went perfectly. I was thinking back to a few of my family memories as it relates to weddings. Can you think of a few things that didn't go as it maybe was in your head or the other person, the bride especially, how they wanted it to go? Um, a couple that come to mind, I have a cousin, his name is Dustin, he's 6'8", uh, and he passed out in the middle of one of my other cousin's weddings. And just so happened, the little Methodist church it was in had an oak pew just perfectly where his head fell and just... Ding, you know, just that, that thud. Uh, I remember when Heidi and I got married, she had, uh, it was her idea for the record, but she had behind us, everything about it was her idea, but behind us um, was like a, a, a railing in front of the choir loft, and she had put a bunch of ivy and then real candles that were lit. There was like, I don't know, dozens of them on top of that railing with the ivy. The one thing we hadn't thought about is that the air vents in the auditorium, blew across those candles. You remember this, Moses and Cindy? And, and, the, uh, and, and they would kick on, and then all the flame, and then you're like, ooh, that's kind of close to that one little ivy leaf there, and the whole ceremony, we're like, come on, you know, don't burn the place down. Just things that happen. People pass out. Things don't go. Someone misses their cue. Uh, weddings tend to have those kind of moments, and we find that here again in the text this morning. The ideals of the wedding 
uh, have been undercut by something that has run out. Can I give you quickly just an overview of the Jewish wedding to help you appreciate the significance of running out of wine? Uh, The typical Hebrew wedding was a celebration considered the grandest event in their social calendar, especially for those who were poor. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in the evening, would follow a feast. After the ceremony, the bride and the groom were taken to their home uh, in a torchlight parade, complete with a canopy over their heads. They often took a long route so that everyone could see them. And then sometimes they were even crowned. They were considered the king and queen of the evening. It was a big festive event. And then we see this crisis that unfolds uh, socially before them. All right, let's talk about a couple of things as it relates to Christ. As we draw closer to Him, it helps us to experience the sanctifying fullness of God. Number one, jot this down. Draw closer to the, to the Jesus who satisfies with His joy. Satisfies with His joy. John here includes this story with a very intentional purpose. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is, is giving to him uh, this direction, but the significance of the phrase, they have no wine, is really, I think, John saying what life is like without Christ. Um, the fact that it comes up empty, whatever we look to for joy, whatever we look to for satisfaction, it fades in time if Jesus is not a part of our lives. In fact, earlier, Scripture uses several places, wine, the fruit of the vine, as a symbol of joy. In Psalm 104 and verse 15, wine maketh the glad, uh, glad the heart of man. And we see this referenced uh, several times in Scripture. Um, in, in one sense, we could say Mary, where she says, if you look back at the text there, where his mom comes to him and says, they have no wine, you could almost take out the word wine and put the word joy there. They have no joy. That's the imagery here. That's what's being alluded to in the story is only through God, only through Jesus, can we have this satisfying joy from God himself. Notice two aspects of this joy. Number one, in verses one to four that we've already read today, there is joy in his presence. Jesus comes to this this marriage. He wasn't at other weddings. He was at this one, and in his presence, there is fullness of joy. In verse 1, you notice that Mary is referred to as the mother of Jesus. It's not Jesus is the son of the Virgin Mary. Mary's claim to fame in the story uh, is that she is the mother of Jesus. He is the one who is featured prominently in the text this morning. In verse 2, you notice that he is invited to this feast. That was a smart invitation, wasn't it? More than they realized in the moment, his presence would be significant. In verse 3, you notice that it references the fact that his disciples are with him. And Mary, because of this, now Jesus, who has been promised so much as the Messiah, he's got followers, and this must be the moment for him to reveal himself. And so Mary begins to uh, direct him. Verse 4, notice Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour, mine hour is not yet come. And so he is careful. We would use woman maybe in a dismissive sense. That's not the spirit of the text today. You remember later in, God, in John's account, Jesus tenderly refers to her as woman as he assigns John to care for her. And so this was not a term of dismissal. It was a term of affection and, and respect, and yet the reminder that he was to follow the will of his Father. And so joy uh, in his presence. Number two, go to verse 5. 
His mother saith unto the servants, after that gentle reminder, whatsoever he saith, notice that word, unto you, do it. So there is joy found in the presence of Christ. Number two, there is joy found through his word. Mary says, do what he says. That's what's going to lead to joy. That's what's going to renew the joy of these festivities. Um, I don't know if you ever have burnt what we would say the roof of our mouth. You know that? that that's not a fun sensation, is it? Um, but someone was mentioning to me the other day, have you thought about this? Is it really the roof of our mouth? Or is it the ceiling of our mouth? Have you thought about this? I know this is a weird thought for you today. It really probably is more the ceiling than the roof, right? It's, it's underneath. It's, it's here. You do know that our, our words can only take us so far, right? What we have to say, what man's words have to say. God's word, the words of Jesus, can take us to heights of joy and peace and satisfaction that no human words can do, right? And I think often the joy that lacks in our lives and in our hearts is because we're not focused on the words of Christ. We must give ourselves more to that. Um, just because it's, it's in my world the last few weeks, one of the things that was most profound to me was not where I stood, that was also a place that Jesus likely stood, but to read Scripture, to read the words of Christ in those places. And I was mentioning to our men's small group today, and I appreciate all of you who came to those. We had a great turnout. Um, was Psalm 118, which is likely the hymn that they sang. Remember, they, he introduces the Lord's Supper. It says, and when they had sung a hymn, then they went out to the Mount of Olives, and I stood there too, which is crazy, just all those places. But to read Psalm 118 literally in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't the garden, it wasn't the olive trees, many of them north of a thousand years old. It was reading the words of Christ in that place. It is the word of Christ that gives us our joy. And if you don't have joy today and you have his word, can I encourage you to lean more into the joy found only in that. In verse 5, I think Mary says a very profound thing. Whatever he saith unto you, do it. Um, I don't know if you realize this or not, but these are the last words that Mary is recorded to say. We're only in John 2. And the last thing that Mary says is, whatever he says, do it. Can I encourage you today? That's the sum total of our responsibility. And if we'll do what he says, there's joy. There's continuing joy on the other side of that decision. Whatever he says, do it. All right, verse 6. And by the way, we see in several places, happy are ye if ye do it. There's a joy that comes when we do what his word says. All right, look at verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. And so in this place where there's a need, there are also these empty vessels. Um, they were used, as is alluded to here, by the Jewish people for cleansing themselves from defilement. Um, the firkins would translate to, pos- to, to, to likely about 30 gallons apiece. And so we have here, Jesus is about to create from scratch 180 gallons of fresh wine, superior wine to anything that had been uh, served prior. One of the things I learned this, <laughs> this past week, I don't know that I've connected these dots before, is that tile vessels, like something that's pottery, was not, is not still to this day considered kosher by the Jews. 
And so the Jewish people early on began to figure out how to take a rock that was not manufactured and to, out of that, carve a cup or a, a pot. Um, I was in Shiloh, where the tabernacle was for 396 years. Remember when Eli gets the word, the ark is taken, he falls back and dies, and that's the end of everything that happened there in Shiloh. It is in Israel, it is the place where there's the most pottery left, just layers and layers of it, because every time they would use a piece of pottery, it had to be discarded. And so the Jews, to get around that, began to carve out stone vessels. That's what's being referred to here that which was used for the purifying of the Jews. It was kosher. It was clean. And so we see here Jesus uh, using what is before him to now provide to these people this source of joy. All right, verse 7. So you have now these large uh, vessels. Jesus saith unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. I love how John is so careful to enunciate the details of this miracle that's about to happen. Notice first that it is the servants, not the disciples, who fill the vessels. He doesn't want it to be any question that somehow the disciples slip something in, uh, and he's using and conjuring up this miracle. It was just the servants that were already there. It was the vessels that were already there. He worked with what was there. So he's very careful on that. And then secondly, notice that they're filled all the way to the brim. There's just water. There's nothing else uh, that is a part of what is about to be a miracle. All right, verse 8. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear out. Notice the word now. This is an instantaneous miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Notice it is an instantaneous miracle. One commentator I was reading said this, The unconscious waters saw their God and blushed. That's a beautiful, poetic way of seeing. They, they, they recognize the authority, the sovereignty of Jesus, and in one moment it goes from mere water to the most, uh, most tasty wine that had been served. And so we see this miracle of God given uh, through His Son, Jesus, joy through His Word. Jesus didn't stir the pot. He didn't say hocus-pocus. He didn't do anything else. All He did was just speak, and it went from water to wine. His word alone can give joy. Can I encourage you today? The world will give you the long game and they'll give you all, they'll keep giving you the carrot and the bait and keep stringing you along. This word gives you joy instantaneously. The word of Christ can infuse your heart with joy that defies the circumstances and the broken relationships and the grind of life. Let his word give you joy. And here's what I'm finding as I move through life. No matter what wine or dreg of wine I drink from in that analogy, eventually as life goes on, the joy begins to wane, doesn't it? Anything else I look to, anyone else that I look to, slowly the joy leaks out of that source. Would you be willing to give up on those side uh, pursuits and would you give yourself to Jesus, to the one who alone can satisfy you with his joy? One author said this, while other worldviews <laughs> lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows. While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows. Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. There's more. There's more on the horizon. There's more to look to. There's more to derive 
our satisfaction from. All right, look, if you will, now at verse 9. What, notice the response now of these who are the recipients of God's provision to them. Verse 9, when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, the servants which drew the water out knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, <laughs> then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. Number two, jot this down. Draw closer to the Jesus who satisfies with his superiority. So he satisfies with joy. Number two, he satisfies with his superiority. Um, one of the things I'm learning, and probably you are as well, is nothing can touch what God has given us through Jesus Christ. Like I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I think often, if we're not careful, we buy this lie. Well, if I go all in on believing and following Jesus, I might miss out on something this world offers. Can I tell you from personal experience and others who have done so as well, there's nothing this world offers a taste of or a draught of that, that can compare uh, to what Jesus offers. And so it is superior to everything that precedes it and everything that competes with it. All right, two things under that quickly. Number one, superiority in his sequence. Superiority in his sequence. And we just read those verses in verses 9 to 10. Jesus does it differently. Um, I think sometimes because things don't start out so well, or maybe where we're at today, things aren't going so well, we tend to disbelieve that God's going to deliver on what he has promised. The other day, I heard a guy say this. He says, when I feel like dirt, I try to remember all the amazing things God has done with dirt, including us in this room today, right? So wherever we're at, no matter what it feels like it's out of sequence, Jesus can still deliver on that which is superior. He's not bound to present circumstances or trends. He is superior. And we see that the ruler uh, sees the marked difference between the way Jesus acts and the way commonly men act, the provision that is unique. And so the significance of this miracle is really John saying and God saying, <coughs> excuse me, that Christianity is an advance on Judaism. It is superior to it. God has kept his best gift for last. What is that? Jesus. And these last days has revealed himself through Jesus, his son. What's the spiritual meaning for us this morning as it relates to Jesus' superiority? The world commonly offers to us the best it has to offer at the outset, doesn't it? What does the world do? It front loads the benefits, right? Uh, that's why often as young people, we, we, we bit that hook. We, we gave ourselves to that which was front loaded with perks and blessings, and then once we've done so, the attraction begins to wane and we waste our lives in empty pleasure. And as we age, we, we realize we went the wrong direction. The Christian life works the opposite, doesn't it? it? It begins with difficulty. It begins with challenge. Many of us are trying to read the Word and tomorrow we're supposed to be in Luke 16 and it's not been easy to start. Uh, and, and it takes on the front end a great commitment and discipline, but as it goes, it becomes more satisfying and enriching, and, and God is superior, we find, in the end. The feast follows the fast, and we so, so we see Jesus here superior in his sequence. All right, verse 11, <clears throat> kind of this summary from John. 
as we pivot now to the second half of the chapter, this beginning of miracles, so this is the first one, did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. Secondly, and lastly, under this section, jot this down, he is superior in his validation, superior in his sequence, superior in his validation. In contrast with the ministry of Moses, who turned water into blood, we see Jesus turning water into wine. The validation of who he was, the power that he possessed, and the disciples who followed him by faith. May just remind us today, the one that we are following is a God who saves the best for last. He truly does. And do we believe that as we follow Jesus today? Are we committed to believing and trusting that as we move through life with the Lord Jesus Christ? The question today is this, where are we tempted to settle for a lesser, easier to get kind of Savior to provide satisfaction? I don't see us following the devil. I don't see us freshening up on our familiarity with seances or those kind of extreme versions of spiritual darkness. I just see us settling for a lesser, even version of Jesus, if not some other Savior that delivers quicker, that gives us a shortcut to the satisfaction that we so yearn for. In John chapter 6 and verse 66, after Christ preaches a hard message that he's the bread of life, and we'll get to that in John 6 in a few weeks, and in verse 66, after he says, you have to feed on me, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. May we never leave our Savior. May we be so desperate for satisfaction that we keep our heart and minds on him. I want to show you a couple pictures. and Like I said, I'll show you more uh, in subsequent weeks. This is a picture um, one of our guys had a Zoom camera, but we were standing on the Mount of Olives looking at the eastern wall of the old city, and this is a picture of the eastern gate um, from the outside. So over that wall, um, if my geography is right, would be the Jewish quarter um, and the Temple Mount. In fact, right on the other side of this is actually the Temple Mount, uh, which was really... Um, kind of disconcerting as we walked across it. You have the Dome of the Rock, you have another, which is just a shrine, and then you have also a Muslim, um, some other buildings there. It's actually con uh, controlled by Jordan, most of it. It's not controlled by Israel proper. And, uh, and our guide said to us, who was a Messianic Jew, he said, let's stay together. They've had, they had someone who made a scene a few days before we were there. So we went across the Temple Mount, and then uh, later we were on Mount of Oz. But this is a picture from the outside um, and then the second picture, this would be when we were on the Temple Mount. This is from the other side. <coughs> so some of you have been there. But that, that gate is blocked off. And one of the things that moved me, there were several times that I was, you know, either my brain just exploded or my heart just melted. You know, you're, you're reduced to tears as you process things that just become more real in that, that space. Was in the previous picture when we were staying on the Mount of Olives, um, our tour guide said a few words, and then Brother Skelly, the pastor who kind of led the group, he said, you do realize that where we're standing, the Mount of Olives, is where Christ ascended. And we talked about that for a minute, and he said also it's where he's coming back to. And he started talking about, he said this, and it just still moves me thinking on it, he said, someday we'll remember standing here 
as we enter with him through this gate. That just, you know, just blows your mind to think about. We will be with him. And I'm telling you, when we do that, we won't be thinking, what else is there for me? Like, this isn't enough riding on a horse with Jesus when he splits a mountain in top and the whole place goes flat and he reassembles the city and we go through this gate. In that moment, I won't be looking for any, you know, is there anything else for us? I'll be completely satisfied. Why aren't we now? Do we really need someone else? Do we really need something else outside, if you will, of the gates and outside of the walls of everything he's provided for us? Is Jesus enough? When he is enough... Uh, we will be satisfied. So may we live in light of that in the here and now. All right, number two, let's go to the second half of our study, which leads us now to the temple and uh, some things that Christ reveals to us about himself in that. Look, if you will, now verse 13. Verse 12 is the pivot verse. He goes to Capernaum, which I was there, and uh, again, just saw some of the things, just amazing. Uh, Verse 13, the Jews' Passover was at hand. Now we pivot, verse 13, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of the money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out, all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured over the changers' money and overthrew the tables. All right, number two, the second fullness of Christ is the sanctifying fullness. So how do we know that Christ is enough for us? Number one, we're satisfied. Number two, there's a progressive sanctifying effect of his presence uh, in our lives. Um, I mentioned it. <laughs> one of the challenges was not testing positive. I got tested uh, four times total um, to get there and get back. And, and so one of the things that, you know, masking up my ears and nose still ache just from wearing masks for, you know, 12, 14 hours at a time. Um, I would eat a lot to try to sneak a quick, you know, break. Um, and then my hands uh, were just, from hand sanitizer washing, just cracked and dried, um, just trying to, to stay sanctified in, in confined spaces. Um, can I tell you today, often we miss this aspect of Christ. When He is everything to us, we're changing. We're becoming more like Him and less like the world. Um, and so it's something for us to ask ourselves today, is the sanctifying fullness of Christ being manifested in my life. And here's what I found both individually as well as especially in the church setting. When we don't have the spirit of Jesus filling this room, this room's going to be filled with something else, right? Carnality, uh, agendas, as we see referenced here. We got to entertain each other because we got to try to fill this space with something besides Jesus. And we see the same thing happening as we look at Herod's temple in the days of Jesus Christ. All right, let's talk about a couple things quickly as it relates to this sanctifying fullness of Christ uh, that he offers to us. Number one, draw closer to the Jesus who sanctifies with his zeal, Z-E-A-L, with his zeal. And we see that referenced in verses 13 through verse 17. Notice first there in verses 13 and 14, we see him coming to the temple And it looks less like a a temple, it looks more like a marketplace. You see animals and birds, and imagine the smells and the noises and the din of this this distraction in the house of God. Um, And and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but basically how it would work is 
someone would come to the temple to offer a sacrifice as a Jew from some other region, and they would operate with a different currency. And so to buy the sacrifice, they had to first change their currency into shekels and then take those shekels and purchase whatever they needed for that given sacrifice. And so as I had being there and exchanging money, uh, there's, a, there's a transition and the prices kept going up as they would basically had folks over a barrel and they would keep asking exorbitant uh, conversion rates to those who would come. They would take advantage of those who had traveled great distances using the sacrificial system for their own increase. Verse 15, notice Christ sees all of this, makes a scourge of small cords and drives them and all of their animals out of the temple. Now, I want to be careful to say this because we just studied about gentleness last year. You don't see Christ, you don't see that actually it touched anyone. Could have. I think it was a symbol of authority and zeal as he waved that, that, that scourge that he had prepared. Not a massive whip, but a smaller uh, lash made of cords. We see that being referenced here, a scourge of small cords, and began to drive them out, those who had uh, taken what he should have seen in the temple and twisted it. Verse 16, and said unto them, so he drives them and then says, Notice to them, especially who sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. Now, why does he confront the people selling doves? Why not those selling others? As we know, most of us, if you don't, the provision of the law was for the poor that they could, instead of buying a larger, more expensive sacrifice as the others listed, they could purchase doves and use those as a means of sacrifice. We see Christ's own parents doing that. Uh, earlier in the gospel accounts. And so he confronts those who were taking advantage of, especially those who were poor. And so he evidences his, his holiness, his righteousness. He's not just being mean. He's standing against that which is distortion of faithful worship. Um, you do know that Christ wants everyone to know who he is. He wants everyone, including our world, to be filled with his glory. He is zealous of uh, his name and his glory. He doesn't want our merchandising and our agendas to crowd out his presence and his power. I saw this a while ago. Maybe I've shared this once before, but this always convicts me every time I see it. In our world, all of our world, we're to the left, and I was somewhere in the middle there, and then you have to the right, most of China and that area. There are more people living inside of that circle, population-wise, than outside of it. I, that just boggles my mind. And yet that part of the world has the least gospel witness that we know of actively going on earlier today. Um, God wants, Christ wants the world to be filled with his glory. And often we let lesser things crowd out, not just his glory in us, but out of us to those who haven't heard of him. So maybe our sanctification doesn't matter to you, but a pure, unadulterated testimony of the gospel matters to the world. He wants to share that. And just like the Jews of, of Herod's temple day and Christ's day, we let lesser things crowd out, not just our own relationship with God, but those who've yet to hear of him. And so Christ, with zeal, pushes back against that agenda, a sanctifying fullness that comes through his zeal. One author I was reading in reference to this section of Scripture, these words, listen to them. The significance of what happened in the temple is apparent. 
and he brings it now to our world. Some of us are not cutting it, are we? There was once a time when there was such a fullness in our lives that we were excited and overflowing like the Holy of Holies, filled with the Shekinah glory. We had an awesome vision of God. But something happened. Instead of our hearts being temples, they've become something else. A saving and loan, perhaps a playhouse, a recreational vehicle, or perhaps a library full of arcane, irrelevant thoughts. A sty of sensuality. And then he concludes with this, the fullness is gone. It happens so easily. Where have you missed the sanctifying fullness of Christ? And other things are crowding out his presence and his power and his testimony exuding out of you to those who have yet to hear of him. We need to let that zeal sanctify us. Jesus cares about what's in your heart. He cares about what's in your life. He cares about what's in your home. He wants to be central. He wants to be at the core of everything and everything and everyone that you impact. So may we let us let his zeal sanctify us where needed. This question, where have we allowed other things to crowd out the presence of God that intended that is intended to be ours and where can we share it with the world as we're purged to let Christ fully enter again? What's hindering and what's pushing out his presence uh, in our lives. All right, number two, go to verse 18 now. So the disciples in verse 17 remember the zeal, the quote, if you will, there. We see that reference as the disciples reflect, a quote from Psalm 69 in verse 9, as they, whoa, Christ is fulfilling this. That would later come to mind again. Verse 18, then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Number two, Draw closer to the Jesus who sanctifies with his revelation. So he sanctifies with his zeal. Number two, he sanctifies with his revelation. Um, obviously, we have you know, maps on our phones nowadays. But I don't know if you remember the days where you would stop when you would get into a state here in the U.S. and you're going to travel, and so you stop at the Welcome Center and you pick up maps and information about the state or the place that you're going to be. Um, this would be maybe a throwback to that era. But I saw the other day a submission to the Reader's Digest of a man who was going through Ohio. So this is what caught my attention. And he said, I was traveling through the Midwest. I stopped at an Ohio Welcome Center to pick up a state map. He said, I found plenty of brochures, but no maps. Then I spotted two employees and asked whether they had any. Sure, said the first guy, I'll go get you one. As he walked to the back, this is what I found hysterical, the second man explained to me, we keep them in, in the storage room. If we leave them out on the counter, people just come in and take them. That was like his takeaway. we got to hide the maps that are available to all people. Aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ doesn't withhold his revelation? Um, he, he reveals himself to us. He informs us. He gives to us his truth. When he's asked a question, he answers the question. Maybe not the way they wanted, but he gives revelation. Jesus, as the fullness of God, is not and does not have to be stingy with his revelation. I'm grateful that he gives us all of this book, and he's constantly revealing himself to us in the day-to-day aspects of life. Draw closer to a Jesus who sanctifies with his revelation. There's nothing that will keep your heart, mind, home, and life pure like being in his word. It sanctifies us. It wants to dwell richly in us, and as it does so, it, it provides this, uh, this sanctification. 
All right, notice two things about this as we wind down our study today. Look at verse number 18. First, notice he says, then answered the Jews and said, what sign? Notice his response to that request in verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, so he doesn't give them a sign visibly. He speaks, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so the Jews question his authority to cast out the businessmen of the temple. They demand a sign that supports his claim of being the Messiah. And in answer, Christ tells them, obviously referring to his death and resurrection, that he will destroy this sanctuary, his body, and raise it up in three days. That is a claim of deity, right? We've talked about that. We started our series by saying that John is presenting Jesus as God. And here's another reference to that, a claim to be able to not just die, but to be resurrected. One of the neat things about our trip was, so as I mentioned, we went up on the Temple Mount, went through security and all kinds of preparation to do so. There was no one in Israel. I don't know if I mentioned that yet. Because of what was going on, Israel opened on Sunday, a week ago. The Sunday I was gone, or the Sunday I was here is when it opened, and then last Sunday we were gone. We were there on Tuesday, and as of the middle of last week, there were only six groups besides us in all of Israel touring Israel. So we would go to sites that normally be packed. Some of you have gone there where it's just wall-to-wall people, and there was nobody. It was just us. And so there was an extra kind of just reflective... And it just it was it was amazing, and our tour guide kept saying that to us. He'd never seen some of the places we would unlock them to go in. Like there was no one where the guy, oh, someone's here, and so we'd unlock some main site um, that normally was flooded with tourists. We were the only ones there. But one of the things that happened, we were on the Temple Mount, walking across the big square, uh, working back toward the eastern gate, as I showed you, and where the Dome of the Rock is. I don't know if you know the history of that site, but it is and I think there's, there's valid archaeological foundation, it is the top of Mount Moriah. And that dome of the rock, the rock being referenced, is the, the highest extremity of Mount Moriah, where Abraham sacrificed his son, or was going to Isaac, um, and now is controlled by uh, the Muslims, and they have this big shrine um, there. But what was really neat is it was raining, which was kind of a bummer. It was kind of cold and wet that day. But there was a guy because only Muslims are allowed in that, that shrine, he opened both doors and was squeegeeing out rainwater that kind of was coming in under the door. And so we, had, we were able to see into it, and we weren't able to see you know, the rock or get real... But some of the guys had camera angles. They could zoom in a little bit. But we got to see into that and to view that. The temple today is no longer there, right? In this day, Christ is talking not about the temple that would soon be destroyed in AD 70. He's talking about his own body. And he's saying that he will reveal himself. He will be confirmed not by just his death, but his resurrection. And we see this evidence through uh, the promises that God gives us. And so this revelation through, number one, his body. You can jot that down there, the revelation in his body. Jesus reveals himself to us through his body, a body that would die body that would be buried. We're going to have baptism in just a few minutes, uh, die and be buried, and then resurrect it. This revealing that happens through the body of Jesus Christ. Um, verse 20, then said the Jews, who obviously miss it, then said the Jews, 40 and six years was this temple and building, a reference to Herod's temple, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Verse 21, but he spake of the temple of his body. And so we see the Jews focused on material things. Jesus is focused on spiritual things. 
this temple that had taken so long to be constructed, they could not believe that he could build it in three days. And so we see a reference here again to his body, a revelation in his body. All right, verse 22. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Lastly, jot this down, revelation in his fulfillment. Revelation in his fulfillment. Jesus fulfilled, and we see the disciples later recollecting that he had done exactly as he had said. The Jews took him literally. The disciples ultimately learned that he was speaking in a spiritual sense, his body being the temple of God. Um, You ever come across things in Scripture that don't make sense to you? Um, I do all the time. I think we would do well (laughs) to trust Christ, to believe Christ, even when we can't understand what he is saying. Um, I think often we, we limit God to just the space in my head, and if God doesn't make sense, then I reject what he says on this subject, or this doesn't seem to add up, and so we reject instead of, by default, believing in his word. Someday, the Lord will make plain to us what maybe today seems ambiguous or confusing, as the disciples found out. Would we be willing to trust him, stop trying to figure Jesus out, and just believe in him? And let him prove and confirm himself in his own way. All right, let's go to Ephesians. Let's spend just a few minutes here as we bring this to application today. Ephesians chapter number 1, and if you would please, verse 22. So we come back to this idea of fullness, that he is the satisfying fullness of God. He is the sanctifying fullness of God. Ephesians chapter number 1. In verse 22, before we do that, I wanted to show you one last picture. This would be of the Western Wall. Uh, So we got in Jerusalem, I want to say like last Tuesday-ish, Israel's time. And we decided just in the evening, this was before we did any tours, just to go into the old city like late at night. It was dark out and uh, it was kind of fun to do. And this moon that was the first, the full moon, first full moon was above the wall. It was just and the lights were on um, the wall. Um, you can kind of see uh, there's, there's almost like a little gap in the middle there. To the right, the women had to go through one side, all the women, and the men had to go to the left. So we weren't like some of the folks who went were couples. We had to split. The guys went to the left side, the ladies to the right. And on the left side, if you were a man, I think actually it was required of the ladies too, you had to have a head covering of some sort. I had a winter hat on because it was so cold, but a few of our guys had to put on one that was provided there. And then we just walked up to the wall. And I was standing kind of toward the middle um, on the guy's side, obviously, just for the record, okay? Um, and, uh, and there was a guy, I think it's actually before that gap, there's a guy, just a silhouette standing there. You couldn't take pictures up real close. He had a like a podium, and uh, he was reading and just he was reading it very loudly and passionately and just rocking back and forth. And that was the only spot on the wall that I could find to get up to. I just wanted to touch it. A lot of us just for a moment, put our hand on the wall and just prayed, you know, just talk to God, just a powerful moment. But with all that noise going on around us, this is the plate. This is the closest the Jews can get, the Jews can get to the Temple Mount. Um, In fact, even if they were willing, they probably wouldn't want to go to the Temple Mount because they're afraid they would step on a holy place that formerly was a part of the temple. They go to that wall, they look toward the temple, 
and they pray. And you could, they had actually behind, to the left, and then behind where I'm standing, there was actually walls of prayer books. You could just grab one, like kind of a mini library, take that book, and then as a Jew, walk to the wall and pray out of that book. So you're hearing that, just the cacophony of all this noise of folks who sincerely are looking for Jesus to come the first time, the Messiah to come the first time. And I, my prayer was just, God, you know, you're going to come back to this place, but it's going to be for the second time for your people, not just for we as the church age believers, but these around me that are still looking for your first coming. And just the emptiness of those prayers, knowing that I have the fullness of Christ's spirit in me, just the contrast of that. Do you realize what we have in Christ, that not just the Jewish people that are still looking for the Messiah, but there are people all over our world looking for the next big thing and the next deliverer and the next guy who's going to bring it, the next gal that's going to deliver on whatever promises they made. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. Look here in Ephesians 2, and this is our responsibility as New Testament local church believers to live this out on a daily basis. Look, if you will, there in verse 22, after talking about his, his standing, his superiority to all things, verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. Notice these next words, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the fullness of Christ is not meant to just be given directly to God in his fullness is not meant just to be given directly to this world. We allow him to fill us and to saturate us, to satisfy us and to sanctify us. And then we, his fullness fills everything. We're meant to be the conduits. We're meant to be the channels. God comes through we who know that he is the fullness. He has come for his people, and we, as we are sanctified and satisfied with it, he begins to fill the world around us. I've said it, and I'll say it again. The world has not changed. The gospel has not changed. It's we as his people, God's people, who Jesus is not enough. And the world can hear that in our testimony, the echo and the emptiness as we claim Christ, and yet look to lesser things to sanctify and satisfy. So may we be willing to look to Christ alone in his fullness. Unlike the sad end of the unsaved, we as followers of Christ can embody the fullness of him. I read a sad story the other day. I I knew some of the details before, but I kind of remind you of what the world doesn't have and what they do have because they don't have Christ, the things they navigate, especially as they age. There was an article written about a man named Ernest Hemingway. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. I read a few of his books for lit class over the years. Um, But the author said this, there's never been a more public example of where the emptiness of our world takes us than the life of Ernest Hemingway. From the time of his boyhood in Oak Park, Illinois, to his teenage summers in northern Michigan, he went after everything life could give him. He became a reporter with the Kansas City Star, served as an ambulance driver in World War I, spent years in Europe, and was intimately involved in the Spanish Civil War. His famous friendships ran all the way from the bullfighter Moletti to the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it went on with other associations of the who's who of his world. And whatever he did, sports, warfare, romance, he went for all of it. And of course, he was brilliant. His great stories, especially the greatest of all, The Old Man in the Sea, show his unique genius. He is a man who did it all. 
I've thought many times in reading the snows of Kilimanjaro that it is largely an autobiographical description. When the wife of the dying hunter says to him, why, why you're the most complete man I've ever met, she's saying what the author thinks of himself. Hemingway went after the wine of life. This is what brought this illustration to mind with the wine. Hemingway went after the wine of life, but there came a time when the wine gave out. In his biography by Carlos Baker, we read these final words, and this is a sad description. Sunday morning dawned bright and cloudless. Ernest awoke early as always. He put on the red emperor's robe, as he called it, and padded softly down the carpeted stairway. The early sunlight lay in pools on the living room floor. He had noticed that the guns were, up, were locked up in the basement, but the keys, as he well knew, were on the window ledge above the kitchen sink. He tiptoed down the basement stairs and unlocked the storage room. It smelled as dank as a grave. He chose a double-barreled shotgun with a tight choke. He had used it for years of pigeon shooting. He took some shells from one of the bows, the boxes in the storage room, closed and locked the door, and climbed the basement stairs. If he saw the bright day outside, it didn't deter him. He crossed the living room floor to the front foyer, a shrine-like entryway five feet by seven with oak-paneled walls and a floor of linoleum tile. He slipped in two shells, lowered the gun butt carefully to the floor, leaned forward, pressed the twin barrels against his forehead just above the eyebrows, and tripped both triggers. The wines of life, the religion of life, does not age well. Jesus, when we derive from him everything that we need and the fullness of everything that can satisfy it doesn't wax thin. It doesn't grow old. It grows richer and sweeter and more satisfying with every passing day. Here's the question, and we're done. Would you embrace greater intimacy with Christ by appreciating more fully his satisfying and his sanctifying fullness? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today.